Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stamwell Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on chapter 16. Chapter 16 Lens Impediment. He that hath wife and children hath given hostages to fortune, for they are impediments to great enterprises, either of virtue or mischief. A quote from Bacon. It was all right, said one of our male acquaintances in Castries, until they sent the wives out. It referred to life on the island of St. Lucia. They were the executives of the British contracting firm engaged in rebuilding Castries, and the wives belonged to the employees of the firm, the same firm which had recently jeopardised its achievements by engaging Ernest. We were taking part in St. Lucia's favourite pastime, gossiping. The arrival of several dozen people had doubled the white population of the island and had doubled the potential subject matter for its chit-chats. For the older inhabitants, it meant a whole new field for possible scandals, and for the newcomers, it meant a completely new field for the creation of those scandals. It is said that the spectator sees most of the game, and from that point of view, we enjoyed a privileged position on content, anchored in our sequestered creek. If we cared to find out about the latest gossip, we had Ernest as an agent in town to keep us informed of what was being dealt out with the bridge hands or swallowed with the rum punches. But one of the rules of the game was that one must be prepared to find oneself heading the list of current topics. Though it was seldom that we were able to provide much material of the right calibre, we did enjoy our hour of infamy. Our only regret was that it came after we had left the island. Apparently, some bright individual had noticed me making a chart of the harbour at the request of the authorities after the failure of a local attempt, and had also observed that we took a considerable number of photographs wherever we went. Aha, said our hero, only one type of person makes charts of harbours and takes photographs, communist agents. Thereupon, as soon as we were safely at sea, this patriotic soul spread the story that we were spies. True, the photographs were mostly of the annual carnival or of local types of fishing boats or peasant dresses, but still, you could never tell, and spies we were supposed to be, at any rate, in one mind. Much as we liked St. Lucia, it was a little difficult to picture it as being of vital strategic importance to an atomic war. As I say, we were not there ourselves to reap full enjoyment from the situation, for the possibilities were endless, and we never did discover where Swizzle fitted into that scheme. There were many people on the island who were learning that an island in the tropics is by no means a paradise and that it suffers from the drawbacks of any small community for those who have been used to a different way of life. Wives were realising that time can pass very slowly when there are no cultural stimulants and that cheap labour is no longer cheap if it must be constantly chivied and supervised. Different people miss different things. One would struggle desperately with his car rather than let it fall into the clutches of a local mechanic. Another said that above all, he missed having a good, solid after-dinner discussion. Another wanted to be able to listen to serious music or go to a theatre. For nearly all to whom we spoke, time was not something that had elapsed since they had arrived in the island, but was something remaining, leaden-footed, till their next home leave. The locals of St. Lucia were more backward and less cooperative than those of the other islands we had seen, and were, with some exceptions, as unreliable as a clock in an automobile. One reason for this may be the depression which followed the burning of castries, and another 
the influence of forms of voodooism, which is stronger in the countryside of St. Lucia than in any other island of the Caribbean, stronger, some believe, than in Haiti itself. It is extremely difficult for the stranger to obtain reliable information on a subject such as voodooism. Those who believe in it are unwilling to talk about it with a stranger and are often too uneducated to do so. Those who live in the islands and who know about it without believing usually try to hide the fact that it exists at all. Though we stayed in St. Lucia for five months, it was only towards the end of that period that I managed to discover anything about the beliefs of the people, and then it was partly because I was unintentionally becoming slightly involved in it myself. The most usual manifestation of voodooism is the practice of obia. The most potent form of this is the ritual of the clay statuettes, in which a small clay statue of one's favorite enemy is made. A pin can be stuck into the statuette at any time to cause unpleasant effects on the enemy. More severe mutilations of the effigy will give your subject an even more unpleasant time. Such practices are comparatively rare in the city itself, but in the villages, and in particular those of the remote interior, Obian men and women obtain their livelihood from the rigmarole. I believe that I figured in one such ceremony. I had been helping an English friend build a yacht, and whilst doing so had discovered that he had been swindled by a local contractor. The contractor, infuriated by the exposing of his racket, took to putting a spell on me, though my statuette was not, I fear, very cooperative. But with less enlightened subjects, the power of obia can be immense. Not very long ago, there were two cases in the Caribbean of local policemen making arrest in the interior of an island and having an obia put on them in revenge. Both men were fine physical specimens, yet within a short time they had to be admitted to a hospital, and despite everything that could be done for them, they withered away and died. It was an example of the power of implicit belief. There are several more specialized cults, some of which involve devil worship. I know of one cultured man, and no doubt there are many others, who firmly believes that at three o'clock in the morning, the astral bodies of members of the cult of high flyers, usually in the form of animals, are floating through the air above castries, and these astral bodies have some very extraordinary adventures. Initiation into the cult takes place at the full moon. The person who wishes to join contacts a member and arranges to meet him at a crossroads named by the member. With him he must take a clean white tablecloth, a knife and fork that have never been used before, and a white cockerel. The rendezvous is for three o'clock in the morning, and during it, the devil is supposed to appear on a white horse. Some practices are no more than superstitions. One of these is connected with the retention of one's employment. The employee takes a bottle and a piece of string and ties three knots in the string, saying each time, as I tie this knot, so may we be linked together. He then fills the bottle to the brim with dark stout or a similar beverage and corks it, saying, as this bottle is overflowing with stout, so may your love for me be overflowing as long as this bottle shall remain corked, and he buries it in a spot past which his employer is accustomed to walk. The system probably works for any local who could cork a bottle of stout and leave it in the ground would almost certainly retain his job without any difficulty. Our own experience of the population of Castries was of the endless hospitality extended to us and of the combined efforts of all to think of any means by which they could help the contents on their way. It was through the suggestions of some of these friends that Content entered the charter business. Our first experience with it came when she was chartered by a party of young people for the weekend. Having reached our destination down the coast, 
we were then invited to the house party which our charterers were intending, and not only had a wonderful weekend, but were paid for it as well. A more ambitious trip was one undertaken with 11 souls aboard to the neighbouring French island of Martinique. It was extremely embarrassing for us to have to deal in this way with people who already had been so good to us in their homes, but as there seemed to be a genuine demand for passages and no alternative means of transport, we gladly entered into the spirit of it. We were fortunate in having fine weather for the trip. Eleven people plus crew would have been rather too much for our accommodation. As it was, the night was fine, and the members of our party showed a marked disinclination to linger below decks. City cushions and pillows, sleeping bags and blankets were hauled out, and canvas dodgers were rigged against the spray. Our passengers then spread themselves about the deck as comfortably as they could and were served with coffee. Conditions became a little boisterous in the 20-mile channel between the islands, and there were a few casualties among the deck cargo, but when the morning sun showed the hills of Martinique close to starboard and the calm expanse of the bay leading to Fort de France, the dead came to life. We deposited our passengers ashore and accommodated some of them that night under the awning. On the following afternoon, everyone was shepherded aboard, the husbands clutching souvenir bottles of French wine and the wives bottles of perfume. This expedition was repeated, and on our second visit a member of the yacht club offered to drive about the island. We thought Martinique was very strikingly beautiful, chiefly because of the steepness of its hills and valleys, and the huts of the peasant population seemed to be better cared for than those in the British islands. Martinique is famous for the little town of Saint-Pierre, which was obliterated when Montpellier's volcano exploded. One man, a prisoner in the dungeon, survived. A village stands there now, and one can see the lava showing through the new earth. The jib halyard parted on that second Martinique trip, but this was offset by our having sold a quantity of porridge to the French harbourmaster, who was passionately fond of it, an unromantic taste for a Frenchman. There were two periods of festivities while we were in Castries. The first was centred on New Year, during which Don and I allowed Ernest to represent us at the ball, because up to the last moment we had hoped to take content for a weekend trip. The second was the annual carnival at the beginning of Lent. This was, of course, a celebration in which the whole population took part, and for weeks we had heard the steel bands practising across the harbour. There were processions and crownings and fancy costumes and dances and an infectious air of general gaiety. But amidst this revelry, a note of tragedy was sounded. A letter arrived from Len, and cunningly hidden among other items of news was the announcement that he was going to be married within a few weeks. We had for some time been suspicious of the time it was taking Len to arrange his business affairs, but there had been no hint from him, and if he did not sometimes fear the worst, it was only as a result of our own conjectures. At least, we reflected, the prospect must have been very attractive to lure him away from his boat, and I dare say that Len, may God rest his soul, is quite content with his lot. During our spell in St. Lucia, we had to become accustomed to the tyranny of the clock again, and our day started so early that Don scarcely ever saw the boat in daylight. He was the first to get underway every morning, for he had to travel several miles to the factory, and was followed in quick succession by Ernest on his way to catch the office bus, after his initial spell of sailing across the harbour in the dinghy every morning, and by Swizzle out for his morning run. After clearing up the breakfast dishes, I used to swim ashore for the dinghy, which had been left there by Ernest, and then start the day's work on content, or the dinghy, or on domestic chores in town. We were well-known figures by now, 
and equally notorious was Swizzle. He was going through a period of wandering, and the natives became accustomed to the sight of one of us wearing a shopping basket on one arm, whistling through the streets after him. So much so that when I walked without him, a local would often sidle up to me hopefully, saying, Find your dog, mister? Shopping expeditions began and ended with the sail across the harbour in the dinghy, and there were many days on which our supply of bread, milk and eggs was imperiled by tempestuous conditions. On one occasion, Ernest and I had a particularly boisterous passage. We were within 50 yards of home when I was caught napping by a sudden gust which put the dinghy over on her beam ends until water poured over the gunwale. Ernest was unable to shift his weight quickly enough as he was encumbered with a bunch of flowers in one hand and a bag of eggs in the other, and within seconds the dinghy had started to submerge slowly while we sat calmly awaiting our inevitable fate, Ernest holding aloft the flowers until the waters settled about his neck. Don had seen the mishap from content, and when he had recovered from unseemly paroxysms of laughter, dived overboard and helped us corral our belongings and take them to the boat. Ernest clambered aboard with the flowers still triumphantly waving aloft, an inexplicable sight for the small crowd which was gathering on the hill overlooking our creek. It was hardly surprising that Len's marriage should be followed soon afterwards by that of his successor. Swizzle's bride was a saucy little black-and-white terrier named Judy, who belonged to some particularly good friend of ours. Unfortunately, the laws of nature made it impossible for either Swizzle or ourselves to hope to see his offspring before we left, but in due course the tidings reached us that three puppies had arrived in excellent condition. Long before the event itself, there had apparently been a waiting list of people who wanted one of these souvenirs, and as the best that Judy could do was triplets, it seemed that there was a danger of a black market developing. But a reasonable distribution of the Piddlers Three, as they were called, was effected, and the island settled down to its normal life again. Swizzle's introduction to the island had not been a happy one, We were rowing across the harbour one day shortly after our arrival when we heard the sound of a multitude of voices raised in great anger and they were dogs' voices. The sound grew louder and then we made out Swizzle's lean form streaking along the water's edge away from the town with a pack of local dogs in vociferous pursuit close behind him. It was only when he plunged into the water that the canine rabble abandoned the chase. Swizzle's long legs stood in better stead than anything else for he was always getting involved in fights and we frequently had to bathe fresh wounds. The trouble was that he would never fight a dog that was smaller than himself and usually picked a quarrel with the most formidable opponent in sight. He had yet to learn the two basic rules of successful combat. Never hit a man your own size and never hit a man when he is down, because he may get up. St. Lucia Harbour is usually crowded with sail. Every dawn the little fishing boats creep out on the first of the morning breeze and in the evening they beat back up the harbour with their catches. It made a beautiful picture, for Castries is a lovely harbour, and there was always a few trading schooners lying at anchor to add to the scene. The fishing boats were of two types, whaleboats and canoes. The former were graceful double-ended craft of about 30 feet, which clearly showed the influence of the whalers who had once operated in the Caribbean. They had long, low mainsails and overlapping jibs, and were capable of sailing extremely fast. Very often we could hear the rustle of their bow waves as they swung through the sheltered water. The canoes were lean craft of 20 or 25 feet and two small spritzels. They were dug out of a log and had a strake added above it, and still copied the form of the old Carib war canoes, even retaining the sharp vertical ram protruding from the bow. Larger versions of these of about 45 feet were called pierogies, 
and carried passengers and cargoes of fruit and vegetables between castries and the villages on the coast. Some of the schooners built in the Caribbean are beautiful ships, but the quality of the building has nearly always been very poor. They are not expected to last more than 15 years or so, and nearly every severe blow in the area is followed by news of a schooner being overdue. The crudity of the building is often amazing, and we have seen half-finished hulls in which knees were bolted in position with the bark still on the wood. It is only by using a tremendous quantity of timber in the construction that any strength is obtained. No plans are normally used in the building. Design, insofar as it exists, is handed on from father to son, and a few sections may be sketched out in the dust with a stick and the frames cut approximately to shape. We were lucky enough to sail one of the local whaler-type boats up to Little Pigeon Island, which lies close to the St. Lucia coast, and found, to our amazement, that the family who lived there used to go for weekend sails in content 25 years earlier in England. Another very beautiful anchorage, which we visited in content, was the isolated little harbour of Marigot. We entered between tall headlands, which sheltered a deep, narrow bay. Near the head of this bay a sandy spit of land topped with palms jutted across leaving only a narrow passage which opened into a small circular anchorage. It was a perfect place and we always meant to return and spend several days there but we were now tied down to office routine and never did manage it. It was not difficult to believe that a small British fleet once hidden there while the French sailed down the coasts without sighting them. Towards the end of our stay, a new question arose and became the topic of our discussions over the supper table in content. We had gradually been building up our shattered bank balance, and though it still looked sickly, we thought it would last us for the passage across the Pacific unless unexpected expense cropped up. A great deal would depend on whether some money owed to us for our literary sales materialised before we left Jamaica, which had been earmarked as our next port of call. Now, however, a new factor entered our calculations. It seemed that if we would remain for a further six months in castries, we could obtain jobs at higher salaries than those we already had. Here was a chance to accumulate a little surplus money which would enable us to make the passage to New Zealand in moderate security and more comfort. On the other hand, it would mean a total of one year in one small island of the Caribbean, which was hardly the way to see the world. After all, we had set out to wander and not to become rich. As usual, we acted upon the vote of the majority. Don, who usually tired of a place first, was absolutely against staying in St. Lucia any longer. Ernest, however, was slightly in favour of taking the jobs, while I was slightly in favour of pressing on. So Ernest agreed that opinion was against our remaining, and we planned to leave in mid-May. Among our friends in St. Lucia were two mechanically-minded gentlemen who had offered to overhaul our engine. Before we left, they came aboard in the evenings and toiled for hours over the carcass of the old grey mare. For the first time, we caught a glimpse of the bowels of the machine and learned the solutions to some of her mysteries. Brought up as they were on more modern conceptions of engineering, our friends approached the task as an archaeologist might approach the exploration of an ancient tomb. But they were staggered by what they found. If they expected to find bearings at all, they expected them to be worn oval. Yet they discovered that they were as good as the day they were born and almost refused to believe that the OGM was 34 years old. Her main trouble was the need for new piston rings, which were unfortunately unobtainable on this side of the Atlantic. The magneto was taken apart and found to be perfect. Amidst great excitement, the engine was reassembled and content was taken for a trial run in the harbour. The results were certainly amazing. 
Not only were all the cylinders firing at the appropriate moment, but we had added nearly a knot to our speed. It was when the time came to slow down and return to our anchorage that the most extraordinary development occurred. We decided in our vanity to stop the engine and restart her, little thinking that of these two operations the first was to prove by far the more difficult. We slid the throttle lever back, there was a slight reduction in speed. We throttled back again, but she was still pounding through the water. We closed the throttle as far as we could, but it made no difference. Well, there was only one way to do it. We took the leads off the spark plugs. The engine ran blithely on. This was the greatest evidence for voodooism that we had perceived since we arrived at the island. Perhaps she would run without fuel as well. At length, we persuaded the monster to stop, but though the mechanics explained that the OGM had been hot enough to act as a diesel when the leads were removed, we were not so easily convinced that the explanation was purely natural, and the experience only served to darken the veil of mystery which hung over the engine room and its contents. This completed the preparations for our departure for Jamaica. The stores were all aboard and the mistakes rectified. Swizzle had been lost and found for the last time and Ernest had resigned his position in town and the sugar factory, despite Don's interference, was approaching the successful close of the cane season. I had bought my last dozen eggs from the market and we had all said goodbye to as many of the inhabitants of Castries as we could manage. We toiled over the capstan and late in the afternoon slipped out of the harbour. Some friends waved to us from the harbour mouth and others watched from the flanking hills as we stood out into the open sea. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level, And there, for $20 a month, you get access to the one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today, so I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.